0: We're gonna stand for the reading of God's word, and we're continuing in Paul's letter to the Galatians. In Galatians chapter one, verses six through 10. This is the reading of God's word. I'm astonished that you are so quickly deserting him who called you in the grace of Christ and are turning to a different gospel. Not that there is another one, but there are some who trouble you and want to distort the gospel of Christ. But even if we or an angel from heaven should preach to you a gospel contrary to the one we preach to you, let him be accursed. As we have said before, so now I say again, if anyone is preaching to you a gospel contrary to the one you have received, let him be accursed. For am I now seeking the approval of man or of God, or am I trying to please man? If I were still trying to please man, I would not be a servant of Christ. This is the word of the Lord. and You may be seated. Before we begin to look at this passage, I wanted to quickly go over the word gospel because you hear it quite often. You're going to hear this word regularly in Galatians. And you also hear it just simply amongst conversation with one another. This word translates a Greek word that literally means good news. And we saw from last week that according to verse two, this good news is the grace of God that provides peace. It's revealed through Jesus Christ, who gave himself for us so that we might be delivered from this present evil age. That's a really great, quick definition of the gospel, and of course, Paul is going to go throughout this letter to explain exactly what this means. But I wonder how many of us, when we hear the word gospel, or you think of the translation good news, really think of the gospel as good news. Haven't... Perhaps we made the gospel not good news, but ordinary news or mundane news, news that has been repeated so often that we don't actually think of it that good at all. I mean, it's like this. I remember awaiting the birth of our first child. It was such an anticipatory, exciting time. For those of you who have children, you know what it's like to wait for that moment. And when that time comes, I think for most who have experienced it, you can say, it's probably the most exhilarating experience you could ever experience in this world. And uh, when our first daughter was born, it was good news. You couldn't wait but talk to people and tell people. Now I have three other children. And with each birth, there's a thrill and an excitement, unique in its own, but it's never quite exactly the same as the first, because it's something that you've known, something that you've experienced. For those of you who know my family, my youngest is about 16 years old, and my oldest is almost 22. many years have gone by now and it's not that i don't enjoy my children i do very much so but it's never like that first time and sadly we can so easily take for granted that good news i remember when my kids were young and one of them said to us when we were saying you know when you get older you're going to leave home and and one of us said i'm never leaving home i even if everyone leaves, I'm staying with you for the rest of our for the rest of my life. And we said, No, no, that's not how it works. You're probably you're going to leave, and God's going to bring you. In. No, I'm not leaving. And I, I think there was both this desire to want to correct her, but as well as to say, I'm so glad you're saying this. This is so wonderful, you know. Uh, but there was also those times when. Our kids are young, and you're just weary and worn, and you say, I can't wait for the day that I have time by, we have time by ourselves. We can't wait for that moment where we're finally free. You know, it's at those times you forget the awe and wonder of that first moment of birth. Sometimes I think we tragically think of the gospel very similarly, The gospel is so wondrous when you first know Christ. If you really understand what it means to be saved from the pit of hell, and it is spectacular. But as you start living life, we slowly forget the glory of the gospel, the wonderment, the amazement, and we make the gospel not good news, but ordinary news, repeated news news that we've heard again and again, and it doesn't stir our souls. Our hearts become so cluttered, which is one of the reasons why this week we had a time of prayer and fasting. It's not to say in any way that by praying and fasting, you gain God's favor to you, as though God didn't love you before that. But it's our expression of recognizing there's a cluttering of our hearts, just like your car needs an oil change every day. Three to 7,000 miles. It needs a tune-up. It needs to get all the junk that was in the system cleared out so that it can function again well. So, too, our hearts are so cluttered with the world and its influences. Not all evil things, even good things, but those things keep us from finding the gospel as good news. Those things make the gospel ordinary news plain news, mundane news. And therefore, we lose sight of how glorious our Savior is. Author and pastor Sinclair Ferguson notes that Jesus was not declared guilty by Pilate. Herod didn't find him guilty. The dying criminal next to him Said there were, this man did nothing wrong. The centurion who was in charge of his execution said this man did nothing wrong. And so he writes, the innocent one is treated as the guilty one in order that the guilty ones, we who are in Christ, may be treated as righteous one. And that is the gospel. The innocent one has become, has borne the guilt and the punishment of one who is guilty. And we who are guilty have the the freedom of someone who never sinned at all, is not guilty at all. That's the gospel, the good news. If that doesn't cut to your heart again and again, then the gospel is not the gospel. It's not good. Again, it's ordinary, and you notice That word, the Greek word euangelion, it's not meant to be ordinary news. It's only good news. So either you find it to be good, or it's not the gospel. Then it's religious news. It's traditional news, but it's not good news. If we lose this gospel, and this world pulls us away from the gospel, if we listen to a different gospel, which Paul is going to really explain upcoming. There's no hope for us. I love the way Jerry Bridges puts it. He says, it is the assurance in the gospel that we have indeed died to the guilt of sin, that there is no condemnation for us who are in Christ Jesus, that the Lord will never count our sins against us, and that we are truly delivered from the reigning power of sin that will motivate us and keep us going even in the midst of the tension between the spirit and the sinful nature. It is the gospel that motivates the Christian to obey. Without the gospel, there's truly no obedience. And it's the gospel that gives us freedom. It's the gospel that gives us joy in the Christian life to rightly have the gospel in view of our lives is to then do all things with the joy that God has set before us. Which is why Paul is so strong in this passage to the Galatians to make sure that they do not veer off the road when it comes to understanding the true gospel versus the different gospel. So let's first look at this different gospel in verses 6 through 9. When we look at verses 6 through 9, we see that Paul is astonished. Look at that word in verse 6. He's astonished. He's shocked. He's stunned. One commentator says, it's like getting your mouth uh, smacked with the back of a hand. It's Just imagine that, and that's what Paul's saying. I've been smacked in my mouth when I hear about you pursuing a different gospel. And I want to look at this different gospel through three words that Paul sort of uses to describe this different gospel. First, he uses the the word desertion. Three Ds, you might say. Desertion. I'm astonished that you so quickly deserting, you are so quickly deserting him who called you in the grace of Christ. Paul is not being petty here. He's not upset because they're deserting Paul, and that's really important to note. When he says, you are so quickly deserting him, it's not referring to deserting Paul, it's referring to deserting Jesus. And notice the adjective, the the modifier that describes the deserting, the adverb. It's quickly, quickly deserting. As I shared last week, Paul and Barnabas, they had traveled personally to Galatia the region and province of Galatia. It wasn't just that they preached in some places and saw a little fruit. When they traveled to Galatia and were proclaiming the gospel, so many people were turning to Christ and they were enthusiastic for the Lord and for the gospel, the good news. And they were following, trusting, they were excited We read in Acts 13, 48 through 49, one response, and there are many that I could have chosen, but here's one. And when the Gentiles, and this is Paul in Galatia, when the Gentiles heard this, they began rejoicing and glorifying the word of the Lord. And as many as were appointed to eternal life believed, and the word of the Lord was spreading throughout the whole region. People were hearing the gospel that Paul was preaching. They were filled with joy. They were accepting it. Many were becoming disciples of Jesus. They were turning to the good news. And then they started deserting the gospel. Not just deserting, but they were quickly deserting. Now, how does that happen? Have you ever seen that? I've actually experienced that even amongst different fellowship groups. People who enthusiastically embrace Christ, who have wept. But then literally a day later, it's as if they're a different person. As if what they believed at that moment is completely wiped away and gone. We read this phrase so quickly, deserting, and sadly, it's it's a very familiar phrase in the Bible. All we need to do is go back to Exodus chapter 32 and 8, and we see the same phrase. Listen what to, uh, to what Moses writes in Exodus thirty two eight, they have turned aside quickly out of the way that I commanded them. They have made for themselves a golden calf and have worshipped it. They so quickly turned aside. What's the story? You know, it's it's the Israelites worshiping, worshiping the golden calf just just before they had been miraculously rescued from the egyptians crossing the red sea seeing the parting of the waters not much later do they start worshiping the golden calf so quickly they deserted and i again i know many of us might think i wouldn't have done that if i saw that type of miracle there is no way that i would ever turn away from jesus my friends I think many of us, and perhaps even our own souls, have seen this happen. The miracles do not last because the enemy's very crafty. He knows how to make a miracle not so miraculous. Well, science proves this. Maybe there was, it was a figment, figment of your imagination. Maybe you, you were a little dizzy that day. And so the water really didn't part. It was just the winds blew it over. There are so many ways in which we slowly start taking and stripping away the miraculous and no longer is something marvelous, wondrous or good. It becomes ordinary, plain. And so let us not be so hard on the Galatians, but recognize that desertion and even quickly deserting is sadly a pattern of sinners. Notice also for Paul that deserting is not in the past tense. It's not that they deserted him. They are so quickly deserting, present, continual. But that's good news, isn't it? Actually, if it was deserted, past tense, it would... seemed like it would be hopeless. But the deserting shows that something can be done, which is why Paul is stepping in and writing this letter. It's not over yet. They are in the process, but Paul is going to step in and give them a warning. The second D, this different gospel that is happening, is because of a distortion of this gospel. And Look at verses 7 and 8. Not that there is another one, but there are some who are troub- who trouble you and want to distort the gospel of Christ. But even if we or an angel from heaven should preach to you a co- gospel contrary to the one we preach to you, let him be accursed. As we have said before, so now I say again, if anyone is preaching to you a gospel contrary to the one you received, let him be accursed. We know through these verses that the problem is that these false teachers have come in to the churches and they have twisted and distorted the gospel that Paul has preached. It's quite possible that as soon as Paul and Barnabas had left those churches in that region, these false teachers came in probably from Jerusalem and they came in bringing what Paul says is trouble. They twisted the gospel, they distorted it. Now here's the big question what does the distortion of the gospel look like? I think for many of us, we tend to think of a distortion as a severe twisting, something that is a disfigurement, so horrific that when you look at it, it looks terrible. But that probably is not what this distortion speaks of. We know a few things about these speakers. Again, the Galatians, they're not idiotic. They have ears and they have a brain and they could think. But when these teachers came in, what were they like? Did they have horns on their head and a big tail and pitchfork? Did they speak ten octaves lower so that it sounded demonic? No, exactly the opposite. They were probably intelligent, articulate, vibrant, energetic, funny, witty, could tell a great story, could make you cry, they were dynamic and charismatic? Here's the big, important question. If someone were to come up here, whether it's me, as Paul says, or even an angel, and were to tell you a distorted, different gospel, would you be able to understand it? Could you detect it and say something's wrong with that? Because if they made you laugh, and cry, and articulate, so smart. Wouldn't it be easy to slowly give in to it without actually being able to test and approve what the words were being spoken? Again, let's not look so quickly upon the Galatians as ignoramuses, as if they were slow. Actually, the different gospel that Paul speaks of has cluttered the church across America, across our world. These teachers, to give you a description of what they were like, they were Jewish Christians, at least Christian by name. So therefore, they believed in Jesus. They knew scripture very well. By scripture, meaning at this point, the Old Testament scriptures, the Hebrew scriptures. They knew it very well. And in that sense, they were very much like the Pharisees. But unlike the Pharisees, they actually professed faith in Christ. So these Jewish Christian teachers came in. They believed in Jesus as the Son of God and Savior. They believed that Jesus died for their sins and rose from the grave. They believed that we need to repent of our sins and be saved. They believed that we needed to be God's people. All of that sounds, well, imagine if someone was articulate, just delivered a a wonderful message and said all of that. So how could you discern that they were actually preaching a different gospel, a distorted gospel? Because this is what they taught. They taught that in order to be a true believer of Christ, you had to actually live out all of the Old Testament law specifically to be a part of God's people. And what they would say, is, if you really want to grow as a believer of Christ and to be a part of God's people, you need to come into covenant with God's people just like it is in the Old Testament. And one of the ways is which is by the circumcision of a male child. So all you need to do is just circumcise a male child and you enter into the covenant community, God's people. That doesn't sound so bad, actually, does it? Because if that was in the context of confess your sins, repent, believe in Jesus Christ as Lord and Savior, and then I said that, this is how you apply that, to enter into the church, to really obey God, just fulfill what you see in the Old Testament. That sounds right. We're going to, again, go into this in much greater detail in chapters 2 and 3 and 4. But when you hear that, it sounds okay. Here's the thing is that Paul, when he's saying this, and what he's saying is the gospel that Paul first preached to these churches, these non Jewish Gentile churches, was not Paul's gospel. It is Christ's gospel. It's a gospel that we know is the same because Jesus is the same yesterday, today, and forever. So it's unchanging. So as we see in verses 8 through 9, the gospel cannot be changed, no matter who delivers the gospel, whether it's Paul or an angel, which, by the way, both Joseph Smith and Muhammad believe that an, an angel directly gave them their own gospel. So that's always a danger when you hear that someone said, an angel gave me this. But if anyone, even if Paul were to come up and preach a different gospel than what Paul preached, let them be accursed. This is the danger. So what is this different gospel, like, really, practically, what does that look like that is actually preached in our day that is so similar to the Judaizers and the false teachers that are coming into the church? It's a gospel that is human-centered, ultimately. It's a gospel that believes that, yes, Jesus saves, but you also need this, to fully understand that salvation. It's subtle, but that subtlety undermines the very gospel itself. It is a gospel that says, yes, follow Christ, believe in him, trust in him. And the way you do that is by following these rules and laws and morals. And that's what makes you ultimately right with God. We see this in verse 10 when Paul says this, for am I now seeking the approval of man or of God? Or am I trying to please man? If I were tr- still trying to please man, I would not be a servant of Christ. Jesus' gospel is not all, at all dependent on what you think or do or what anyone else thinks or does. Uh, that's sort of the, the point of verse 10. Paul's not preaching this gospel to be pleasing a person. And so there is... Nothing about this good news that is dependent on another person. Also, it doesn't matter who you are, you can still receive this gospel. The most impoverished of persons, the President of the United States, they have no greater or less standing before Christ based on any merit at all of who they are, what they've done, what evil or good they've done. By definition, the gospel is grace alone. Jesus gave himself for you. And so this should lead to complete forgetfulness of yourself. In one sense, this is a key component of what it means to follow Christ and his gospel, is to be self-forgetful. It's so, so wondrous to be self-forgetful. Before Paul met Jesus on the road, What was his life like? He was always trying to please other people, trying to prove himself that he was more righteous. Just read Philippians 3. He was better off. He was the most faithful, the most zealous. See, when you're trying to do that, it's always comparing yourself to others. A world-centered life a non-gospel-centered life is one where it's always mindful of what everyone else thinks about themselves and what they think about everybody else. They're not self-forgetful. They're self-focused. And so it is the gospel that actually causes us to be self-forgetful. Tim Keller, in a book on self, uh, self-forgetfulness, he writes this, the truly gospel-humble person is a self-forgetful person whose ego is just like his or her toes. It just works. It does not draw attention to itself. The toes just work. The ego just works. Neither draws attention to itself. I hope you have toe-like egos. (laughs) The different gospel is all about the self. It's a consumeristic gospel. It's about what makes you feel good and how it compares to everybody else around. What are all the other churches doing? So we should do that. What are we all other, like the big churches doing? Whatever those churches are doing, that's exactly what we should do. It, it's a feel-good, tickle-the-ears popular gospel that makes our feelings more important than God's glory. I wanna give you a few examples of this different gospel, this consumeristic different gospel that says Jesus and this leads to righteousness. Fighting against homosexuality and transgenderism. Popularity as a church, numerical growth, family values, being able to really raise our children well in this society bringing America back to its Christian foundation. I remember when I was young, uh, our church had a Christian flag in it. It was, there was an American flag. And by the way, I went to a non, it was mostly ethnically Korean, but it had an American flag, it had a Korean flag, and it had a Christian flag. I just thought, you know, I, you never really understand that. But that, now looking back, I think that's so odd. But that was that's the value of so many churches is their nationality. Social ministries to the poor and oppressed. Friendships, social groups and interactions. Counseling and therapy sessions, healing and spiritually, emo- heal, uh, healing ministries youth groups, and children's ministries. I could have listed so many, a hundred. Now, none of these things are wrong at all. They're not wrong. Not inherently. But the problem is when they become lifted as gospel. In other words, I am more concerned about our fight against transgenderism and homosexuality than I am for the gospel of Christ. Or I'm more concerned about the impoverished and the poor than the gospel of Christ. Or more concerned about the evangelism of the unreached peoples than the gospel of Christ. Or I want our youth ministry to grow in a way in which so many youth are coming and packing this place than the gospel of Christ. The list is endless. What Paul is saying is that this is the gospel that is a different gospel that he is attacking. Because these Jewish Christians have come in and said, yes, believe in Jesus. Yes, he has died. Yes, he has saved you. Yes, he is righteous and good. He's to be worshiped. He rose from the grave. And also believe that you need to trust that following the Old Testament law is actually good and it actually makes you righteous as well. The as well part, the plus side, all of that, that combination is what makes these gospels, one that is to be accursed, that is so evil, actually. It is evil. And that is truly, again, the, the darkest power of the enemy. He takes that which is good, and he's distorted it to be something to be used for evil purposes. If that can happen in the garden, where at first there was no sin, surely it can happen today even inside the church. Our works, none of it, not a single point, and by the way, they always try to seep in because at the end of the day, we still have our to- hard time believing. It, it has to be a little bit of me. I, it has to be my prayers that makes this go. It has to be my worship. It has to be my singing. It has to be my preaching. It has to be my obedience. It has to be my faithfulness. Something, just a little bit of me that makes me truly saved. And that little bit of eking in, it's a poison to our soul. Our works never on its own lead us to Christ as we see in verse two, we are saved solely by grace alone through faith alone. Grace, it is grace, grace, God's grace. The gospel impacts every area of our life. All of those things that I listed can be wonderful fruits and expression of the good news of grace, but they are never in and of itself grace. They do not lead us to Christ. They are only expressions and fruit of it. And if we don't truly understand that, then we will be misled. So, I can tell you that there will be many preachers you will hear on YouTube. And some of you are perhaps checking out different churches, even online, and you're listening to preaching. You have to, I, I really want to encourage you, exhort you, as well as warn you listen closely are you hearing jesus christ gave his life for you and do this and you'll be righteous that is a dangerous phrase it sounds so right so good but it is deadly to your soul imagine you need a heart transplant or you will not survive but if you get this transplant um, 100%, you will not only survive, but you're going to thrive. And you're going to be able to do all the things in your life far better than you ever could without that heart transplant. But then you think, that's not true. I don't need a transplant. I'll just do th- those things anyway without the transplant. And so you run a marathon. And you start eating healthy. And you lift weights. And you work harder to be stronger better. What eventually happens? Your heart gives out. You don't make it. Because you need a heart transplant. And no matter how many good things you do to make that heart work, if it at the core is already broken and busted, it will never be able to withstand the day, the testing of that heart. It will falter and fail. And that is a deadly, fatal mistake. My friends, when we try to add on to the gospel, when we try to build our ethics and our morality and our family living and family worship and you know, staying away from uh, drugs and alcohol, I don't curse, I don't smoke, I don't do this, I don't do that, and all of that in some way makes us think before us, you know, I'm actually a pretty good person. All that work is, that's, that's good. It's me. It's all me, or it's not all me. Maybe it's a teeny bit me, Lord. It has to be. Then we're just basically saying, I don't need a heart transplant. With a broken, busted, deformed heart, we're saying, I don't trust that. Just need to eat healthy. Just need to exercise and I'll be okay. No, you are bound for a heart attack and it will come. It might not come today, but it will come. And when it comes, it will be deadly for you. My friends, do you know the gospel and its power? I love the way Martin Lloyd-Jones describes it. Um, He tells of the fact that Jesus was um, pierced on the side and blood and water flowed out. He talked about the idea that, and he's a physician, he said it's quite possible that that spear pierced his heart and literally broke his heart. And so the fluids that came out were not just simply some miraculous outflow, but it was piercing so deeply into his heart, it actually quickened the time upon which he could survive, which is why he died a lot faster than most who are being crucified in that way, because crucifixion by Romans was intended to be an incredibly slow, over a period of days, an agonizing death, The Romans were surprised that he died so quickly. And Martin Lloyd-Jones posits that he could have died from that piercing. But I think that image of that spear piercing his side, breaking his heart, that Jesus died of a physical broken heart and he died of the weight, the crushing weight of our distorted ugliness of our sin. His heart was broken so that our hearts would be renewed, revived, resuscitated, restored, and made anew. The heart of stone became a heart of flesh. This is the power of the gospel. May we never try to rob that power and undermine it by claiming very pitifully that some level of our work gains us righteousness before God, that we are good enough before God because we've done X, Y, or Z. No, it is because our Savior was broken so that we would be restored. The gospel proclaims that good news. It is good news, and we must appropriate that every day of our lives. Every moment. Let's pray together. Father, we turn to you acknowledging just how much we have faltered when we have chosen to turn to a different gospel. We have made the good news not good at all. We've made it ordinary and plain. We have thought that if we just go to church every Sunday, we're good enough. That's good enough. If we raise our kids morally, that's good enough. If we get baptized or take communion, then we're, we're good for the weak. But you see us as we are. Our hearts are disfigured and distorted. They've been corrupted by the depth of sin. We're so thankful for the gospel of Christ, the objective historical reality that God the Son would bear our sins, the curse of God, the wrath of God on a tree, that he would become a curse for us. Thank you, Lord Jesus, for the piercing of your heart restores ours in Christ. What hope do we have but Jesus? You are the the means by which our joy and freedom is possible. May we look to no other falsehood, lie, idol. Even those good things in our lives, even those moral things, they will never be able to bring us rightly before you. All we have is Christ, and that's what we proclaim at this time, at this moment. At this hour, we worship you, Lord, in Jesus' name.